beginning this evening's talk with three words that form the basis for the talk that Venerable Aranyani <clears throat> offered us this past Tuesday evening. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Pali words that translate into virtue or ethics or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom, insight. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and insight, wisdom, form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of heart and mind, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana or the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, that of dukkha, the, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences, and the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating, fully liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question and then goes on to answer it. And here, is, here are one of these dialogues that he has, we could say, with himself in relationship to his uh, students. If concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? The mind is developed. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All lust is abandoned. And then he goes on to say, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed, he says. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration 
samadhi or samatha meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation. In particular, alternating sequences are developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice, the process, and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue sila, as they deepen and mature within us, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a very deep and subtle level, and what brings suffering, confusion, what brings dis-ease. intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us are our habits of attraction, which are greed, clinging, attachment, and aversion, such as worry, resistance, anger, fear, and the identification with these states. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now, this momentary round of worldly suffering, which in Pali is called samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deeper and further purifying concentration, samadhi. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the true nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keeping us from awakening, keeping us from enlightenment. The true nature of things, or what we could call ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Massachusetts, dogs, chipmunks, thoughts, rain, Boston, New York, your favorite restaurant, the Amtrak train system, are understood, are regarded as being without substantial sustaining 
essence, being without any separate, solid self-identity. In order to really clearly see and know the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya. In speaking to Ananda, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, in the Kimata Sutta, the Buddha again asks a question and then proceeds to answer it. And these are his words. What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, Rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose. Serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose. Pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose. Concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose, knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arahantship. Arahantship being the complete liberation or ending of suffering, which is uh, the fourth stage of enlightenment. And in speaking to his monks and nuns very directly about his own process and experience, the Buddha said, it is owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom or insight that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our most difficult experiences, or maybe what we deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that purification is synonymous with this act of learning. 
And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samadhi, concentration, or samatha, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind that's ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The Vesudhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of the act of concentration. And I'd like to share a couple of these uh, with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower and then dives towards the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, before absorbing into it. So a metaphor from the Visuddhimagga for preliminary access, and absorption concentration. Another metaphor offered in the Vasudhimaga that I particularly relate to because of my own experience in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. And then the potter, with a continued focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, and the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which is the object of attention. The other hand moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay, at the same time as being informed by it and a bowl forms. Quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process 
of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into the deeper states of samadhi, possibly the jhana state. The power of a clear, relaxed, focused mind. A concentrated mind brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, and calm, quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the beautiful and purifying current of samadhi or samatha concentration, I think that it would be helpful for us to begin exploring and learning a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, and peace, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, cannot grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the breath, and you're anxious, you're worried during the process, it will actually prevent you from being calm and joyful because worry enslaves us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to, we could say, let go of thought, willing to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thoughts, so to say, even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. And it's important to note that this isn't about kicking out thoughts. Kicking out thoughts is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thoughts. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled or when it gets lost, 
in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and the most difficult step of the practice. The mind can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is is really very important. During a three-month concentration retreat, uh, I had such an experience uh, with my uh, teacher, Pawak For the first week, approximately week of this retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. And I would take two or three loose teas and mixing them in a tea ball, mixing them together, uh, a seemingly very important and seemingly necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. And about a week after doing this, I noticed that there was a box of tea, of one of the very same teas that I was putting into my mix. This box of tea was sitting on the counter right in front of me. And it had been sitting there every day. But the mind hadn't noticed it until that moment. And then the thought came up after that box of tea was noticed. Do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? And no, came the answer. No, it's not at all important. It's merely a habitual distraction. And so I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and enjoyed it. What happened after this is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And this would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. Is this really important? And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And so I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the heart and the mind are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt, 
Classically, the development of concentration and jhana is described as the purification of the mind. And as the Buddha stated, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, with the development of samadhi practice, the mind is developed. So samadhi or samatha practice, the development of calm and concentration. This actually weakens the hindrances. It really seriously weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, bliss, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration, when these are pure, clearly manifest, clearly present, the hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind, are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as considerably weakened in the long term, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens, and even more specifically so if one has the inclination towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of a deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the the development of concentration and that, of course, also hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed. Calm and tranquility free the heart, the mind, from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind in those moments a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. In Pali, the word for this is vitaka. Establishing the mind on the object, such as the breath. This eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuously sustaining attention on the object. In Pali, this process is called vichara. This eliminates uncertainty. It eliminates doubt. The deeply concentrated state of joyful zest, bright happiness, an elation in the mind, resulting from the purity of heart and mind. The word for this in Pali is piti. This brings a delighted interest, a delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention, such as the breath. As the concentration develops and deepens, With the first and second jhana, in a deeply absorbed state, 
of concentration, there is actually much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one of the aspects, one of the direct aspects of a direct experience of jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are temporarily inhibited. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness, sukha is the word for this in Pali, which is actually not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful, contented mental feeling. When this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness and agitation and regret or worry are completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deep concentration. In Pali, the word for this is ikagata. Again, occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of deepening concentration. And then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during the absorption in the fourth jhana. This is an experience of absolute centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And at that point, eliminating sensuous desire for anything, temporarily. As samadhi practice or concentration develops and moves along, and the imperfections, uh, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the heart and mind, when at least some of these imperfections have been very clearly let go of, abandoned, relinquished temporarily, at that time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in one's practice and a deeper and fuller connection to one's own practice. When this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience a great inspiration, an enthusiasm, and an appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and often to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly know and experience ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes called rapture, is born in us. And with this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, 
the body and the mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy are removed. They disappear with the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings this serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on and on it goes. At this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and serve our insight practice. And the first of these is what is called momentary concentration. This is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, then another another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or level of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And it can be reaccessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of jhana concentration, but it's not an an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With access concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, 
Excess concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during that time the mind, the heart, is temporarily purified of all unwholesome mind states. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind and body are profoundly weakened in the long run, though not totally or finally eliminated. And as was spoken by Venerable Aranyani on Tuesday, it's really only through vipassana, through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, attachment, and identification. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that's not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary for the potential of a liberating vipassana insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet, to wholeheartedly absorb, we could say, into experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being very clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place, but with no pondering, no thinking about what is occurring. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the bodhisattva, and I'll just define or say what that means, bodhi, the word bodhi in Pali means awakening or uh, enlightenment, and sata is a being, uh, Uh, dedicated to or having the strong intention to bodhi, to awaken. It said that the bodhisattva 
Siddhartha Gautama asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment after the six years of extreme engagement and extreme ascetic practices? And in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, a memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the, all of the men in the community, rich and poor alike, come together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and quite naturally uh, sat up in the meditation posture uh, quite comfortably and quietly as he was uh, told to sit under this very sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open, uh, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the shimmering heat coming up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hoofs and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and they devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him, and in his heart finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all this in without prejudice, without attachment, 
and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained the first, first jhana through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a happiness that was not born out of desire for or <coughs> clinging to anything. And in his young mind, in his young heart, a deep intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought came to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and a sureness that, in fact, this was the path to liberation and resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his evaluation of pleasure in that it was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish and hatred, all the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified or banished, released, let go of, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or trying to live through them or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships, or by struggling, by trying really, really hard to let go of the painful states, mind states, related to extreme austere practices, or by trying to lose one's self in physical and mental self-created hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in very tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, various situations, activities, relationships that created hardship or a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. In your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that this would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, happiness, 
and ease into your life. Potentially a certain kind of strength might be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, the light of awakening, can never be seen, felt, or really truly known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that, in in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that is no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind, that's liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisatta had the insight that deep concentration, and for him, jhana, was a step on the way to enlightenment, an important and useful step on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in the Majjhima Nikaya in his greater discourse to Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I am not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and he regained his strength. And then he continues talking to Sakaka, saying that he then went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And continues to say that quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, as he explains to Sakaka, he says, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remained. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he says to Sakaka, 
that he systematically attained each of the liberating knowledges one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is, thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up, often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be or how it isn't supposed to be, what's good and what's bad, what we definitely know is true and what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice. A mind made up, a mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off to the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier this evening, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samadhi or samatha, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of vipassana, the teaching and practice of insight, wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life carry us to the other side, to the side of peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samadhi, the development of concentration, including possibly the states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are beautiful, potentially healing, and powerful states in and of themselves. 
and at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it so that we recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years after or later, uh, after the story that I've uh, just shared about the Buddha's life took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and very powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift of clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt, are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem from. And I'd like to close the talk this evening uh, with another Mary Oliver poem. I think I closed my last talk with a Mary Oliver poem as well Um, that speaks to this evening's topic in her her really quite unique and beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic, in a somewhat o- oblique and yet uh, moving way. And this uh, poem is called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring. And finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure. 
but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's like one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.